0: Live on tape from KGCR Studios in sunny Southern California, this is Glitch City Radio. Welcome, everybody, to episode seven of Glitch City Radio, the podcast magazine for Glitch City, an independent games and digital arts collective based in Culver City, California. I am one of your hosts, Julian Cantor, back in the uh, main host chair just for this episode. Finally. Finally got back where I belong. (laughs) Um, You know, and sitting across from me.
1: Hi, I'm Jamie Joe Perrano. I'm another host in another chair.
0: I
2: am standing, and uh, my name is Levi Rohr. I'm one of the other hosts. One of the other hosts. You're the other host out of the three of us. But there's many hosts, the fill-in for me.
0: All right. Well, great to see you both. It's been a while.
2: It
1: has been a while. I feel like we've been on a journey. Like We went cross-country and came back or something.
0: Reminds me of a game, which maybe um, we'll be advertising later in this show. But apologies to our audience for our uh, somewhat sporadic schedule here. Lots of moving parts. Jamie and I both started day jobs several months ago, and we're uh, a little bit busy there. Levi. This is all I have in my life.
2: This is
1: your main thing.
0: I'm full time.
1: (laughs) Well, we've really got to make this podcast successful then.
0: (laughs) Make it count. And Levi, you're really making it count this episode. It's kind of an essential element to your climb. And actually, speaking of the climb, you're hosting the panel this episode, right?
2: I am hosting the panel. Uh, I've got some of the brightest minds in the biz to talk about industry perceptions before you got in and after you got in. And that's all part of the climb. This episode's theme. It's all part of the climb.
1: Who's climbing into the panel with you this time around?
2: Uh, my guests in this panel are Alan Hazelden. Okay, we heard him last episode uh, actually on your show. It's right. the story of Icarus, he had a lovely retelling. So go back and listen to that one. That was the debut of
0: your show, which was at the end of that episode. Who else is on the panel? Uh, we have Ben Vance. who was the interview subject last episode, so he's coming back as the interviewer, and he's going to be on our panel as well. And then finally, a new guest, Heather Penn. Heather, of course, is the artist on Overland, the highly anticipated game coming soon.
1: I love our returning guests, and I love our fresh guests.
0: New ideas and new people.
1: That's what Um. we're about.
0: (laughs) But speaking of, uh, you know, we don't want to make it all about the new people. We got an oldie but goodie on today's episode. Fan favorite. The longtime host of Live with Laura. She's appeared on a panel discussion previously. But this episode, we're going to have a full-length interview with Laura Miche. Are you doing it live? Uh, this one will not be live. That's exclusively the domain of live with Laura. Mm-hmm. The interview, it's a little, very edited. Like get, get all the music in there and all that stuff. A lot of production work on it. Yeah, yeah. That's how we do these shows. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, but Laura, you may know her from uh, her work on such games as Where the Water Tastes Like Wine or the newly released Pathologic 2. Mm-hmm. She also works for a
2: uh, AAA games studio. She works on a small game. You might have heard of it yeah okay we may have to bleep that one yeah, or yeah. whatever right. I, i'm looking forward to finally listening to this podcast uh didn't you say that last episode levi uh no i said i haven't listened to this
0: podcast okay well maybe if you went back and listened to last episode you would hear that you actually did say that last episode but that's okay let's move on to <laughs> the commercial break coming up next I am developing wobble dogs. Uh, When you were a child, what job did you want to do? Apparently, I told my parents I wanted to live in our backyard and study pill bugs.
3: Pill bugs are pretty cool.
0: I liked them a lot as a kid.
4: I don't know if that's a viable (laughs) career, though. (laughs) Who are you? Adriel Wallach, independent game developer and organizer of Train Jam. When you were a child, what job did you want to do? I knew opening other people's mail was illegal, so I wanted to be a mailbox because I wanted to read other people's letters. Did you believe that your mailbox was reading your mail? No there wasn't a lot of logic to this. Who are you?
0: Julian Cantor. I'm hosting this podcast.
4: When you were a child what kind of job did you want to do?
0: I wanted to have two jobs. During the day I would be working on a trash truck and at night I would be a chef. I told my mom that and her response was make sure you wash your hands.
4: I was gonna say that joke also but your mom beat me to it.
5: Who are you? Heather Penn. The generalist 3D artist. When you were a child what job did you want to do? I wanted to be a teacher but I think that was just the first job I saw so I was like I want to make posters to put on the and stuff. So you want to be the type of teacher that is an artist.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think I was just
5: trying to be an artist.
1: This episode is brought to you by where the Water Tastes Like Wine by Dim Bulb Games. Where
0: the Water Tastes Like Wine is a bleak American folk tale about traveling, sharing stories, and surviving manifest destiny.
2: Players meet a variety of people, each with their own stories to tell as they wander through a century of United States history.
1: Where the Water Tastes Like Wine is available now on Steam, GOG, and itch.io.
0: City.
2: And we're back with the panel with me. I have Heather Penn. Hello. Alan Hazelden. Hi. And Ben Vance. Hey, hey. I'm just going to start by reciting uh, a lyric. There's always going to be another mountain. I'm always going to want to make it move. Always going to be an uphill battle. Sometimes I'm going to have to lose. Ain't about how fast I get there. Ain't about what's waiting on the other side. It's the climb by Miley Silers, released in 2009 for the Hannah Montana movie. This month's topic it's, it's about how how did you get to be where you are? now, your journey, uh, both like artistically or coming from outside to getting onto the inside of a community. Personally, growing up in New Mexico, there was no programmer community, game development, nothing. It was just computer science. You would go work at it like a Los Alamos National Lab or something out there. Um, So I'm curious what you guys encountered uh, growing up or getting into the communities and the place you are now um, and kind of what that was like. Maybe that's a little too open. Anyone I'm can way go. Too no. Way too open. Way too open.
3: So uh, I'm kind of a grandpa. I'm kind of a, I'm an older guy. So when I was growing up, there was nothing. Nothing existed. I didn't have many reference points. In fact, when I was young, I didn't even think that games could be made by people.
6: I never really thought about how games were made. Yeah. I mean, I and still don't the, think To about it. this day. Yeah. <laughs> I started making games at university back in 2006 and there there was a student society for game development and that's i guess the first time that i interacted with people who are making games but i don't have strong memories before that of like oh yeah this is something that people do and this is something that i could do
5: i i think i realized that people could make games in my senior year of high school i started in architecture but then two years in i was like wait what about games Whoa. just slowly dawned on me that i was like steering my life towards that without really understanding it until probably like four years into college <laughs> so it was like a
2: subconscious sort yeah i like... was like
5: let me go to this design program where they have a 3d art class and one game class but i'm gonna do it so that I could become a graphic designer because that's like a normal job.
2: Oh, that's established.
5: Right.
3: When I started, so I went to college in 1997 and there wasn't really game design schools at that point. Full sale didn't exist yet. There were Indies, but you probably didn't call them that at the time. It hadn't really exploded yet. I went to school and I didn't know what I was going to do. All I knew was I liked computers and I liked art. And so that's what I studied in school. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I thought maybe architecture, but I wasn't studying architecture
2: seems like it was like all like tangential interests that kind of coalesce into like one specific thing
3: Well, and, and I didn't there weren't game design programs But when I got there, I think I assumed that games were too hard I mean first of all corporations made them and yeah. then once I started to realize that you could sort of get a job in it I was like that seems really hard, you know, like making this thing run in real time all this stuff like that's not for mortals I think the only reason I transitioned into it actually is because I did start programming more. I got involved in like a VR lab in school and I was like, maybe I can. I thought I was going to go into movies for a while. Like maybe I should do CG. And then when I thought about it, I'm like, yeah, but I don't really care that much about movies. Like I like playing games. Maybe I should do that.
6: I studied computer science Mm -hmm. and I guess I started getting into game development because I saw it as a fun way to practice programming. Like I like programming and it would be a nice way to use those skills and then many years on i hate programming and never want to do it again so <laughs> all's all's good
2: well, all's well in the world now mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of an interesting journey i think since i'm i'm the youngest here i i actually went to like a games program because like it existed by the time i was going through the college system I actually had a moment as an adult recently when the developers of the, the latest Zelda game actually were talking about their process. Some of these people have been like with Nintendo for years and years and they made other games that I played as a you know, kid. And here they are at you know, the Game Developers Conference just talking shop about why they made certain decisions and how they made decisions. There's method to this. There's a process. Have you ever encountered that with any games that you grew up with? I
5: recently uh, watched someone play kingdom hearts one and i think seeing how not dated but like how tech has advanced so much being able to understand almost graphically everything that was happening seeing how a texture was scaled weird i felt like i had this weird understanding of the level that games was at then and it made me realize like how far i'd come when I think about how complicated and overwhelming games felt when I was younger is because it just takes a while to learn the terminology to even begin to understand it. I have memories of not understanding what an engine was or like reading about how to weight something and I'm like, what? Is skin weighting and why does that sound really horrible? <laughs> I don't know, but like you just slowly build up knowledge and when people talk about it at conferences like, oh okay, I understand.
2: It's like developer vision. Yeah. <laughs> like like Alan, have you felt that with like any specific things? I
6: think I actually feel this in reverse, maybe. When I look at games from like big studios, I just don't understand how they get made. Because I make games in, like, tiny teams, and then when I think about a studio employing thousands of people working on this game, like, I just don't understand how anything happens. Like, at all. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Like, I don't understand how games of that scale make sense or are completable.
2: Yeah, I I think just as, like, an adult, like, working in this industry, there's a sort of reverence to it now. Like a, what? (laughs) Sort of, like, feeling... A part of me is always trying to be like, how did they do that? For me, I think it's
6: less like paying attention to the technical side. But like as a designer, I'm just super picky about the games I play. I just have zero interest in most games because I can look at it and go, okay, I guess they made those choices and those choices mean I don't want to play it. Any tiny thing will make me go, no, no, this could be better.
2: Ah." There's so much to that do you feel that way with certain things other like do you have particular tastes
5: yes <laughs> i've always been pretty picky but i think now it's yeah you sometimes you see past like the game design you're like oh okay this is what they're doing well i don't want to spend my time on that because i can see past the theming of the systems
3: my brain's spinning on the uh, on the last question about how like large games get made i mean can, yeah i, I mean if you have anything
2: to, to throw into that like i don't think anyone knows
3: <laughs> well that's the thing so i worked at ea for many years and so i got to participate in that um and see how it happened and also how it didn't happen because i was on multiple teams which got canceled and <laughs> projects which didn't see the light of day and seeing like dozens and dozens of people how they work together or don't in some ways that's how it happens is that there are big parts of the team that just don't work together because you can't manage complexity beyond you know a certain scale of people it's like okay this is a group that focuses on this part this is a group that focuses on this part and maybe they don't talk that much because it would just be chaos if they did. There is, like, a structure to a lot of these. So the biggest mystery for me, personally, is companies which kind of... Uh have this flat structure you know like valve or naughty dog how does anything happen there now that's like a real mystery to me like how do you get people to organize when potentially we could argue about any facet of this project
2: you like were in the machine Mm -hmm. like what was that like
3: my transition was kind of soft in some ways because my job previously was helping big teams use technology so i was working for a company called criterion that made the renderware engine which was most famously used in grand theft auto three, although they had paid enough to like take the licensing thing out of it. So I had had about two years of working with companies and programmers and various sorts of people in the machines at different scales. It was kind of great because I got this, you know, inside baseball look at the game industry. I realized very quickly how <laughs> poorly run <laughs> many companies are. Even at some of the biggest companies, you know, you have people that are beating their head against a problem in a very silly way. Sometimes I'd walk in and I'd feel like, like a therapist, you know, I'm like, so what are we doing here? And they would start talking through their problem and simply having someone there to talk to that would help them solve their problem. And I'm like, I don't actually know anything about your problem, right?
5: Rubber duck.
3: Oh, the rubber duck.
5: This happens a lot on my teams. So
3: You were a professional rubber duck. Exactly. A traveling rubber duck.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think early professional experiences have this sort of revelation, like a step between being outside the community to being inside. It's almost like a,
6: it's a very soft threshold for me. I guess the transition was I was making these games with the Student Society and then started doing online game jams like Ludendare. And then I started going to physical game jams, which back in 2010, 2011, there was a really, really strong physical game jam community in the UK. And I just met a lot of really cool creative people. People like Stephen Lavelle and Terry Kavanagh were there organizing those jams. And it was just kind of like... A peer relationship even though they were making like way better stuff than me it's just like oh everyone's here just making cool games i just felt really welcome in that space
5: i feel like the difference for me from feeling like an outsider to an insider was literally just having one friend who could be at events with me because you always feel like you're on the outside when you're just observing people you're like wandering around and it's confusing and scary but then you have a friend, you're like, oh, now we can just be friends together. In <laughs> I don't know how to explain it, but <laughs> working on a team and we all get along really well and just being able to go to GDC with them or E3 and just like goofing off feels a lot more like you're part of it, I guess.
2: Like an anchor to a community.
5: Yeah. That's sort of weird advice. Like just have a friend to go with and you'll feel less awkward. <laughs> you won't have yeah. imposter syndrome.
3: <laughs> I think there's something to that because with the glitch community, I didn't join it. I helped start it. Right. So like, that's a totally valid approach. If you don't know how to make friends, just uh, be there on the ground floor. <laughs> well, just yeah. start a community, like start something with your friends. Then you are inside of that thing. Yeah. And that can help you access other things.
5: Wow.
3: Thanks
2: everyone for, for sitting down and talking to me.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.
2: Thank you. Ben, uh, you're interviewing Laura next, right? That's correct. Great. Well, stay tuned for that.
3: and I am here with Laura Miche. Hi. How are you doing today? I am doing rockin'. Rockin'. Yeah. That is so good to hear. So let's start with how you got here. How'd you get in this seat? In this seat here at Glitch City? Yeah.
4: Well I was born.
3: That's a great start.
4: I was born in Connecticut on the other side of the country and I grew up from the age of zero through adulthood And then I moved to California for work. First, I lived in the Bay Area, and I worked for a little games company called Tencent for a while.
3: They sound cheap.
4: All their products make only ten cents. No, that's not (laughs) true. Uh, Tencent's huge. It's uh, one of or the biggest games company in China. I started off there doing quest writing and design for browser-based social games like Facebook games. Mm. That was my first job in games. And then uh, all my projects got canceled and then Tencent changed my job every six months for five years. Oh my God. I did every type of games job that doesn't require programming, market research and business development assistance and localization and I rewrote people's speeches for events in English and stuff like that. And Eventually Tencent allowed me to move to LA and then after a while I ended up getting transferred to a different project that was under the Tencent umbrella which was Zam and I ran a website for them for some time and while I was doing that I started making commercial indie projects. So, like I did some writing for Frog Fractions 2 and I wrote and edited on Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. That was sort of how I started to meet people Mm -hmm. from Glitch. I met Rachel Sala through Jim Storm Dancer. Rachel and Jim worked together on Frog Fractions 1 and I had done game jams in the Bay Area with Jim and he introduced me to Rachel and then we became roommates and then Rachel invited me here to a couple Glitch events and that's how I met all you all.
3: So you've done a lot of game jams.
4: I was once doing like eight game jams a year. That's too many. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. When I worked for Tencent, I was so frustrated about not shipping things <laughs> that I needed to like complete creative projects. I've made a lot of friends through game jams, people I love seeing and hanging out with, because we got Foxhold together on some jam project, like, I don't know, almost a decade ago. I think it's one of the best ways to learn how to complete a creative project and, like, express a whole idea. Being forced to finish it is really valuable.
3: Yeah, that time pressure is very useful, especially when finishing things seems to be one of the hardest <laughs> things in games in general. Yeah,
4: I worked on, like, a novel-length Twine game for, like, five years that I never released. Wow. And it's like that never happened. Mm-hmm. All that did is teach me how to use Twine really well. <laughs> (laughs) My life has been improved in much more significant and meaningful ways by things I did in two days than by things I did in five years, just because I never released that thing. Sometimes it's really valuable to make something small that you can reuse, or that proves out an idea or like a structure that you can reuse. I once spent like 30 minutes writing a bunch of Twine code that I then used in almost every game that I made after that.
3: Are you uh, willing to share what that Twine code did, or is that a trade secret?
4: Yeah, it allowed me to help multiple writers working on the same project more easily. Hmm. I wrote some super simple JavaScript that allowed my friends who didn't know much about Twine to write sort of like storylets or individual little chunks of content. And then all they had to do was dunk them in a file. And then the game would choose randomly from between everybody's stuff. For a while, I was doing randomly generated content based Twine games. we would write at the beginning of the story and the end of the story at the start of the jam. And then everybody would go off and write as much content as they were able to. And this was great because if you write the beginning and the end first, the game is done. It works. And then you can just create as much content as you can physically do. If you get tired, if you get sick, if you end up not making as much as you thought, it doesn't matter. The game still works. For jams where I wasn't allowed to reuse code, I would just like retype out the same three Twine passages, and then I'd be like, OK, now it works again. <laughs> <laughs>
3: particularly fond of.
4: My friend Rosten Murphy and my friend Kent Sutherland and I have made a lot of game jam games together. You can see them all on Plus Ultra. Dot ninja.
3: Plus Ultra. Dot ninja. Dot
4: Ninja cost two dollars and eighty-eight cents at the time, so that's why we got it. We did this Game Jolt-like adventure jam that was like a twenty-day-long jam. We made a Snowpiercer parody called Slaughter Train that I am still so proud of. It's very goofy. Uh, it takes place on a train that moves forever, you know, like in Snowpiercer. Yeah. And just like in Snowpiercer, the main currency on the train is bomb drugs, a drug that is also a an explosive <laughs> You can spend bomb drugs to buy your way through a train car, or you can fight everyone in the train car. And that was the first time that I used Twine 1 to make JSON objects inside Twine. So we had like a whole Twine file that was just like every panel was a weapon, and the weapon had its own stats, and we had code to let you pick up weapons, and every weapon had an amount of durability, and there was a difficulty level for sneaking past the train car and a difficulty level for fighting it. It was super complicated, but we planned everything out pretty strictly in advance. By the end of like the first day, we knew Laura's going to to make all the weapons tomorrow, and like it, the game was functional pretty early on, and we just spent almost the whole jam just writing these dumbass train cart jokes.
3: That sounds great.
4: <laughs> I don't know if you've seen Snowpiercer, but like, yeah. every train car in Snowpiercer is very thematic. Mm. You know, there's like the sauna car and the aquarium car, and there's the kindergarten car, and <laughs> that's the way it was in our game too. Like we had a desert car where everything inside that car looked like a desert, and we had a server room car where there were all these ancient servers with people taking care of them. We had a toothpaste car where everybody was making toothpaste and by the end of the project we we made it for the game jam like in 20 days or whatever and then we made a second version for it over the next two months that had over a hundred train cars and it had 14 boss battles. Every 10 train cars a boss would fight you and all the bosses were like strictly thematic in their own way so there was one boss that was obsessed with maps and there was another boss that was made of guns. We created at the start of the project a structure that would allow us to tell the same type of joke over and over and over and over again and it's differently funny every time
3: feels like you've constructed a whole world of sounds like Wonderful jokes.
4: I want to have a job someday where all I do is I just write dumb jokes all day long. And each joke has to be like less than 150 words. I can do that. That could be my whole job. I haven't yet convinced anyone that they should just let me sit in a room and write puns all day long. For a variety of reasons, I've been sort of shuffled off into the editor corner where a lot of people think that I am only capable of editing, and I mostly get hired for editing-related contract jobs, even though I've done more games writing than games editing. In book publishing, the people who control what happens are editors. In online media, the people who control what happens are editors. In games, there's, like, no understanding of what role an editor should have. So if I do want to make things happen, if I want to be in charge of a game idea or make the thing that I want to exist in the world exist. I'll have to make people think that I am a writer because they're usually the ones that have the creative impetus in games. You don't frequently see narrative leads being editors in games, even though they very well could be. So it's lucky for me that I do both, but it's unlucky for me that no one knows that.
3: I feel like the games industry has these jobs which are ostensibly connected to other industries. Yeah. But they are very different, or there's a different understanding of what the responsibilities are. I
4: know plenty of people in games who just don't know what an editor does. Like, they think an editor corrects spelling. They have no idea that an editor could be responsible for what the reading experience is like, which has a huge impact on the way that a player absorbs information. On Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, I had to make a lot of decisions about how much text I thought should be on every screen, which dramatically affected the way that some random events had to be written. A digestible chunk of text would be on the page. That means you have to move the choices around sometimes. So much thought can be put into text.
3: It's funny, actually. One of the first indie games that I worked on after coming out of AAA. What was a game called Skulls of the Shogun.
4: Oh, I love that game.
3: <laughs> Thanks. Um, I actually did most of the writing on that. I mean, it it's the first time I've done anything like that. And something I thought was really important was to be concise. We have a story to tell, but people want to play the game. So I was trying to keep each line kind of minimal, but, you know, tongue-in-cheek. We also were working with other folks, and at some point, they were brought in, and then they came back with, like, here's a rewrite. And in some ways it was much better. Like, there were more jokes, and there was more stuff. But that style was completely gone
4: yeah anytime there's text in a game it has to be so closely tied to the ui and the
3: user experience of reading the text well and it was like we had a max character count instead of coming well under that we were bumping up against it constantly yeah it's like okay now i'm reading a lot and that's a very different experience than you know a word here and a word there
4: i strongly believe that every single game that includes text should make available to its writers and editors a test app that displays any amount of text they want to test in the ui you know yeah 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 when you're writing a novel, you can guess what the reading experience will be like. Someone will be reading little black letters on a white page but if you don't fundamentally understand what it will be like to read the text in your game, I don't think you can do a good job. Like, there's so much tiny, sophisticated little choices going on in the way text is displayed in Kentucky Route Zero. There's pauses in the text. It's almost like a choreographed experience watching you know, text unfurl in the UI in that game. Yeah, totally. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's like every JRPG from when I was a kid that just breaks up sentences and all text unfurls at the same speed and maybe the font sucks. Every game can be made meaningfully better by having a better way of presenting text.
3: I just want to fanboy out for a minute. For people who don't know, we do a thing every year called demo night oh man yeah it's basically a series of talks that people in our community give they're five minutes long and they can be pretty much about anything i
4: prefer it when they're not about games
3: yeah there's a couple of good game ones but i really like pushing outside of that
4: i like seeing what people know and care about outside of their main career
3: so that's a good way to introduce what you've done a couple times now they let me do it like three years in a row now which is bonkers. Yeah, we try to mix it up and have different people coming in, um, but your problem is yours are too good. (laughs) So, you're going to have to do it every year. I I think that's the rule. I always try to tell a meaningful
4: and funny story about human beings from history.
3: There's many things that are working well in those talks, but as a kid, I really did not care about history. But during your talks, it's like some other thing completely. If only we could talk about history in this way, (laughs) all the time, people might get excited about it. I was obsessed with history when I was a kid.
4: I grew up in new england and there's a lot of historical locations in new england so starting from when i was pretty small the only vacations my family went on were what my parents called history vacations where we would go to a fort or to boston or
3: pennsylvania and look at archaeological digs and stuff like that too wow so that was instead of going to disneyland or something yeah we
4: went to disney world once and then after that for like the next 10 years of my life my parents only went on vacations where we would drive to a history related location on the east coast
3: (laughs) that's amazing and you were into it
4: oh i was so into it from even a very young age i was willing to spend hour after hour just in a museum i still whenever i go on vacation anywhere my first impulse is to like find the nearest museum Part of the reason why I liked it when I was a kid was because there was such a focus on people and history. I grew up pretty close to Sturbridge Village, which is this historical reenactment type location in Massachusetts where there's all these people who dress up in colonial outfits and talk to you about the pie that they're baking or whatever. Even when I was a kid, I was really interested in what was it like to live in the past. When I went to college, I got lucky enough to find professors who taught classes that were more about that than about dates and events. So I took a lot of classes about the cultural history of the Atlantic world and stuff like that. I did a whole project where I just read twelve plays about the same topic. and When you're experiencing cultural artifacts from the past or when you're like learning about people's opinions in the past or the way they actually lived or what their day-to-day was like, it's really exciting because it gives you a way of getting in touch with your own humanity, I guess. you know, like How different are we really from the people of the past? Well, not that different, but also extremely different. You can read something about people from 300 years ago that makes them seem incredibly modern and then the next second you'll be reading about something where you're like, why would anybody do that? That seems awful. I really like that sort of familiarity and surprise combined.
3: Do you have any advice for people that might be aspiring to to write for games, to get involved in that?
4: I guess the only thing that you can do if you want to do writing or words-related stuff in games is just make games. There's so many low barrier of entry, easy to use text game tools out there you can use twine you can use inform you can make a visual novel people who want to work with text are actually pretty lucky because there's so many options out there it's still a lot of time and effort to make projects in your spare time while you're making money doing something else but that would be the solution i would recommend to people i don't think people should go to school to learn how to write for a game i don't think people should pay anyone to teach them how to do that i think you should just use these free
3: tools and just jump in yeah Thanks for joining us today
4: thanks for interviewing me
3: of course where can people find you on i guess the internet probably not real life
4: you can find all my games and stuff and information about how to hire me on lauramiche.com that's l-a-u-r-a-m-i-c-h-e-t.com
3: City wow.
0: City. And we're back. Episode seven, complete. Thank goodness. It was quite a climb to get here, but we're now at the top of the mountain. The
2: view's great from up top.
1: Being at the top of the mountain, we can see the bottom of the mountain, which is great. The Uh, bottom being episode 10 for this season.
0: Oh, yeah, right. It's down there?
2: All Uh, the
1: way down there. We
0: haven't uh, made that clear previously, but uh, yeah, this is a 10 episode run here for season one of Glitch City Radio, so only three more episodes to go. Make sure you uh, subscribe for all the shocking plot developments that are coming. There's still time to get caught up, Blitz. Blitz. Speaking of episode seven, which we just completed, we want to thank Laura Miche, our wonderful interview subject, for coming on. Uh, you can find her online at LMiche on Twitter, hot Twitter handle, L-M-I-C-H-E-T. And the music you heard there during the interview uh, came from the soundtrack of Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, the soundtrack written by Ryan Ike. And thank you to all our panelists.
2: Alan Hazelton at Drackneck, Draknek, D R A K N E K, Ben Vance at Buffalo Vision, and Heather Penn at
0: Heat Penn. And that's pen with two ends at the end. Two ends.
1: Two ends. one pen. Radio, radio,
0: radio, radio. And uh, we keep on soliciting voicemails. No one's sending them in, but we always love hearing from the community. You know, this is supposed to be a communal podcast, so we want to hear from the indie development community. Please, if you have any kind of questions or anything like that, just record it on your phone, voice memo, whatever. Email us, glitchcityradio at gmail.com. We love hearing from you, and, and you'll get on the show if you send us a voicemail. Okay,
1: well, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening and to all our patreon subscribers if you didn't already know episodes are released a week early on our patreon feed and you could subscribe any amount any tier will do
0: yeah and actually last episode we had this whole thing with the scheduling where we released the episode wide the same time as patreon that was a mistake we've learned our lesson they will always be coming out a week early for our loyal backers on patreon
1: for everyone else you can listen to glitch city radio on itunes soundcloud youtube and now a newbie google podcast little indie company matching our indie dev style
0: hey what's google i have to google them that's not making it look <laughs> um, and yeah so we, we have lots of platforms now that the podcast is available on but as far as i understand it the itunes rankings are always very important for podcasts so you know make sure you just give us a nice review or rating on there if you like the podcast it's always just nice to hear our feedback if, if you're listening and enjoy it so
1: we appreciate it greatly and appreciate every listener
0: And with that, we'll be back
2: next month, so tune in then for another episode of Glitch City Radio.